Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. still watching house of the dragon i'm richard lawson and i'm josh wiggler and we're here today to talk about the season one episode one premiere episode of house of the dragon the heirs of the dragon uh we're just gonna we're gonna say the word dragon a lot on this podcast it's, it's so, so many times get you it's gonna it's gonna lose all meaning within the next 30 seconds i think should we just get a bunch of them out real quick dragon 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 you will actually speaking of dragons um on our preview episode last week josh um i asked us both to predict when we would first see a dragon and i believe i said in the opening scene we'll hear dragon's wings and then see a dragon and turns out I was right. <laughs> it turns out that you know a thing or two about TV. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we there's so much to talk about with this premiere episode, obviously, um, because it's setting so much up for uh, what promises to be a big and violent and robust season of uh, Game of Thronesy drama. Um, but I think there's also the context of it as it exists, like in our popular culture, you know, house of the yeah. dragon is obviously a prequel to game of Thrones. It is one of several series that have been talked about planned. There was a pilot filmed for another show um, that we're all spinning off of this huge global hit. Um, so Josh, now that we've seen episode one, 
Um, and, and I know you've read the book, so a lot of this didn't come as a surprise to you plot wise, but what was your impression? I mean, did it satisfy you in the way that you wanted it to, or did it confirm any fears you had about returning to Westeros? Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a, it's a little bit of all of the above, though I am skewing more positive than, than negative for sure. Uh, I, I really, it is very strange to say this, Richard, about a show in which we saw, you know, people's heads implode with morning stars during joustings, uh, these horrific raids of King's Landing as led by Daemon Targaryen, the really, really brutal um, childbirth scene that happens midway through this episode. This is a very gruesome episode of TV, as Game of Thrones often was, you know, throughout its entire run. So it's very strange when I say, it felt it felt like going home mm-hmm. <laughs> in mm-hmm. a lot of ways for me. Yeah. It felt it felt very familiar. It felt like going back to an earlier time in TV for me to to return to this world, to return to Westeros, to see uh, see see such iconography like King's Landing, see the dragons flying around, see a whole mess of Targaryens on my TV screen. That's something that I've always wanted to see, even you know all the way back when it was just Viserys and Daenerys Targaryen back in the beginning of Game of Thrones. I don't know. I was I was really struck by it. I was really taken by it. I was really impressed with the craft that went into building the episode and just how much budget is so clearly apparent here versus when you go back and you watch that very first episode of Game of Thrones. I don't know. I think side by side. I'm just I'm I'm really really impressed with how they how they came out the gate flying on on this one i'm curious for for you having not read the book that this one is based on but having gone through all of the wars previous with the mm-hmm. eight seasons of game of thrones what was this like for you to get back into uh westeros with house of the dragon it's so funny that you said the kind of like nostalgic like cozy quality because i i reviewed um the first five episodes uh that review is on vf.com now um, and I kind of said the same thing as violent and horrible as a lot of the imagery and and sort of uh, other stuff in this episode is um i i felt yeah it felt like kind of going home back to our muddy you know bloody miserable home <laughs> that mm-hmm. we spent eight <laughs> years in um and uh for that reason you know it, it felt good you come to the new yorker radio hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from whether it's bruce springsteen or quest love or olivia rodrigo Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. I I do have some questions, you know, um, based on this first episode about about where a whole season of this can go. You know, I know, for example, we talked about in the preview episode that um, Millie Alcock, who's playing uh, Rhaenyra right now, she will at one some point be replaced by an older actor, and so Correct. will um, another character. Um, and and so I know we're going to jump forward significantly in time as the season goes, but in this one episode alone, like I do wonder, um, you know, this is a story of, so far, I think, about one kind of close knit family, uh, or at least closely, you know, aligned family, and uh, you know. The, how can that match the scope of of the original Game of Thrones series, which was, you know, multiple locations per episode and tons and tons of characters? So that's my one like kind of cautionary feeling about it is like, um, like one cautious feeling I should say, um, is like, will this start to feel maybe too small at some point? Which is kind of a 
an insane thing to say about a no, Game of it's, Thrones show. No, it's... It's not. I mean, I think even just in this first episode, how far away are we getting from King's Landing at any point in time? You know, we're really we're really located here. Uh, And when you compare that to certainly the later seasons, the deeper seasons of Game of Thrones, we're in Bravos. You know, we're in Meereen. We are at the wall. We're all over the world of ice and fire. This feels very contained. You know, the the really the furthest we we go at any given point is the opening sequence in Heron Hall, uh, which took my breath away. And I thought was was a really, really wonderful place to start with this uh, this earlier question of succession that kind mm-hmm. of, I think, haunts the, the rest of the story that we're about to embark upon is this idea of this wise old king who really struggled with the idea of who should succeed him. And in making sort of um, something of a half measure choice or at least something of a half-hearted decision that wasn't all the way in, all of the rest of this show is going to spill out. So I, I thought it was great to have that be in the ruined husk of Hall, sort of this iconic destroyed castle that was one of the first ma- major monumental locations in Westeros that was brutalized by the arrival of the Targaryens in the first place. To begin here, uh, sort of in this house of ruin, as we're going to be following the decay of the Targaryens here in this show, uh, or at least be, you know, kind of tracking why the Targaryens died out by the time the Game of Thrones starts up. I thought was a really, really good, compelling choice. But I think it's 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 very clearly centering on one specific thing. And uh, while there's definitely a major, major and it's worth talking about illusion, uh, if not outright major reveal about the Targaryens' connections to the White Walkers and all of the Night King drama from deep in Game of Thrones, it's very clearly much more about the Iron Throne, this show, that this is the Iron Throne show. It didn't end uh, in a way that had everybody absolutely riveted by the end of Game of Thrones, but it feels like this is another pass at getting back into that intrigue, getting into the politicking of it all, and doing it with a bunch of characters that do come armed with some of the the big supernatural accents of Game of Thrones, specifically in the form of the dragon. So is it going to be bigger than Game of Thrones? I think in in some ways it it, it already feels that way to me. I feel mm-hmm. like the scale of the show, even just within King's Landing, felt huge to me. And I felt like the emotional stakes immediately felt really, really big to me as well. But if you're looking at this as the show that's going to be crawling all across the globe of, of uh, the world that Westeros is contained in, Planetos, as we, as we like to say, um, you know, I, I think it, it, it's a, there's a chance it's going to leave you wanting. But I think that there, you know, it, it's, it's hard to get into. You, you mentioned that Renera is uh, currently played by Millie Alcock. Emma Darcy is going to be showing up later in the season to play this character. That suggests passage of time, like ex- yeah. extreme significant passage of time. So I think that the scope and the scale is going to look different, but I don't think that it's necessarily going to be smaller. I think it's going to be huge. I just think it's going to hit different this time around. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about this show as a project that could stretch on for seasons, bringing us all the way up to, you know, when a young Daenerys is kind of spirited away from Westeros, you know, um, that can cover a lot. I mean, that, that they tell us in the title card at the start of this episode, it's 172 years before Daenerys Tar- Targaryen. Did you appreciate right? so, that? Was this was this a little too on the nose, or do you think that this was uh, this was important for the casual who's strolling in on an HBO Sunday night? It's like we should just let you know right yeah. off the top, this is way before Danny. Yeah, you're not going to see like young Ned Stark right. <laughs> anytime soon. Um, so, yeah, I think that's important. And I think, you know, the, the thing uh, you know, toward the end of the episode um, with King Viserys telling his 
his daughter, who he's just decided to make his heir uh, and successor. And, um, you know, that's unprecedented in this world's history. Um, you know, he tells her about the sort of the prophecy and the White Walkers and the winter and all that. And that to me felt like I don't think this show is going to get into that really that much. Um, but that was the kind of, you know, the, the, the other bookend to there was the title card at the beginning of the episode. And then toward the end, there's the and remember, this is all sort of part of this continuum of a story right. um, that we've kind of seen played out. So I think I think I think basically the show or this episode especially like had the job of, you know, reassuring past viewers who were not deep in the lore, who hadn't read the book. Um, that this show is based on, that they're going to be okay, they know where they are, you know, um, and I think it does that well. Um, and I think, you know, it, it also has introduced us to characters who I find, you know, kind of immediately compelling. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I think, d- is this a show about Rhaenyra? I mean, if, if as much as there is a lead, is it her? I would say so. I mean, I, I do think, again, it is, you know, we are... We we are trained when it comes to Game of Thrones to be a little cautious of any one character is the lead. Uh, I think uh, the the first season of the series of Game of Thrones really hammered that home pretty swiftly, or at least nine episodes deep. You got the point. Um, so I'm I'm a little cautious to say that any one person is the main character, but very clearly, so much of the story engine is revved up via Rhaenyra Targaryen who is King Viserys's uh, daughter, um, would be the heir apparent if not for the fact that she is not a man. Uh, and so it goes to his brother, Damon, initially. Um, but clearly by the end of this, the the big Stark imagery, uh, not really uh, involving a Stark, it's the big Targaryen imagery by the end of this first episode, is Rhaenyra just by the throne with everybody pledging their fealty to her and pledging their their loyalty to her eventual ascension to the Iron Throne. We do know from Game of Thrones when Cersei Lannister was sitting on the Iron Throne for some time that that was groundbreaking, that a woman had not really sat the Iron Throne ever before. So does this story have the happy Mm. ending for Rhaenyra that certainly some of us are going to be hoping for by the end of this first episode? We'll see how all of that shakes out, how all that ultimately bears out. Um, But by by the end of this one, I think it's really clearly setting up that she is a huge deal in this specific story. But she's she's not the only one. There's so much of the perspective is is laid at the feet of Damon Targaryen. I think Viserys as well. I think with Viserys, with Patty Considine's character, you're kind of getting someone who is this fusion of not just, uh, you know, you know, obviously he's representing House Targaryen in a very major way. But I think he's kind of this fusion of Robert Baratheon in the king role of season one and Ned Stark, somebody who's trying to do right to some extent, somebody who is trying to do this job, this very difficult, terrible burden of a job well, and maybe struggling a little bit through it and trying to find an honest path forward. I was really gripped by him in this episode as well. But by and large, really, really hooked in through Renera's story. And to your point, the fact that she is played by one actor now and will be played by another actor later I think that that actor, uh, Emma Darcy, I'm very excited to see what they bring to the role because they have a very tough act to follow. I think that Millie Alcock brings it here as Renera. I really loved her right away. Were you hooked in? Oh, she's great. Yeah. And I think that the way the character is drawn, like, you know, look, if you've watched most of Game of Thrones, the original series, 
you know to be a little suspicious of ice blonde princesses who ride dragons <laughs> because, you know and i i don't think that this episode is like foreshadowing any potential megal megalomania <laughs> that that afflicted daenerys um i don't you know, know and that was a coin richard yeah. that's yeah. what they say about these targaryens you see where that's it right. lands are they good are they bad we don't know the coin's not in the air quite yet yeah and i think that like you know the show is is the show has it knows to um uh, let us be wary of the Targaryens, even though they are our lead characters. And I think that's reflected in the performances. I think Alcock is is really terrific because, you know, you think, OK, we're, we're rooting for her. Like she's going to break the glass ceiling of Westeros. Uh, good for her, despite the fact that, you know, she has to lose her mother and sibling to, to do that. Um, and then we kind of can see Damon, who who has this you know, leads the city watch and, and has this violent raid, you know, kind of law and order, like iron fist kind of um, brutality um, that he wages on the city. Uh, and, and you could say, oh, the show is setting him up to be the villain. But right. he and Rhaenyra have this connection that is that, you know, in this episode, they speak. Um, is it Valerian, the language? Yeah, right? Valerian with each other. Uh, yeah, yeah. That they so they have this this bond um, that, you know, probably a lonely princess uh, in this dank castle and she has this cool dashing uncle like that makes sense to me you know and so is he pure villain or does she have a little of the villain in her um i think that's a really in the, those two characters are set up in very interesting uh totally. relation to each other yeah i also have to say so uh, the valyrian language initially for game of thrones and dothraki as well created by uh david peterson the linguist and author uh and to hear it in uh this show to hear high valyrian spoken conversationally uh, between these two Targaryen characters felt really cool. It just felt very transportative. It felt very easy, which was really mm -hmm. impressive to me from the performance standpoint, considering how difficult it must be to master this fictional language, especially for, you know, a character who's uh, or an actor in Millie Alcock, who's not going to be a huge part of the show for the long term, you know, is playing a younger version of this really important character. Uh, that was really uh, that was really amazing to me. I, I think that that dynamic between Damon and Rhaenyra was really well established in this episode. And you're you're right to point out the the complexity of the characters. Game of Thrones uh, again was very instructive in heroes could become villains or villains could become heroes. And really, the reality is that no one is either thing necessarily their entire life. Uh, and you know, you look at Jamie Lannister as somebody who starts off pushing a kid out a window, and by the end of it. Well, maybe by the end of it, you're like, Jamie, choices. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, before, before some of the final decisions that Jamie makes, I think you're a little more on board with that guy. So what kind of trajectory is someone like Damon on? And then what kind of trajectory is someone like Rhaenyra on, considering what we saw from Daenerys's story? You know, is this an opportunity for people who maybe didn't love the way that Daenerys Targaryen's story was ultimately told? Uh, you know, I think a lot of the, the critiques uh, certainly center on the pacing of the reveal of Danny's, um, you know, uh, real, you know, break at the end of the show. Um, but there's also just, you know, uh, questions about the premise of that in, in the first place. I think maybe this show has an opportunity of you starting off with a character like Rhaenyra and watching her a little more closely and, and maybe not being quite so inclined to feel like any one person is automatically going to be the hero of the story. There may be some, you know, unsavory elements to, to all of these characters. But one thing that I think is illustrated really well here with um, with meeting Renera as a teenager uh, and seeing her at a pretty young age is exactly that. She's a kid. You know, she's a teen. She's, you know, at the um, she's at the, the start of her life, ostensibly. And 
what that can look like moving forward and the ways in which her seat and power might mold her alignment moving forward and the choices that she makes. I think it's really fun that we're along for the ride with her at this point in her life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, uh, the, the, the shifts that, that probably her character will make the more she moves closer and closer to that throne, um, I think could be really interestingly reflect, reflected uh, or kind of counterpointed um, with uh, a Lady Allison, um, yes. who is, you know, her sort of handmaiden, you know, she's a lady of the court. Um, her father is the hand of the king. Uh, and this episode, like, you you wouldn't you would maybe think oh she's just the best friend character she's going to be kind of in scenes where you know Rhaenyra needs someone to bounce ideas off of or whatever but this episode is is it shows you like no 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 this this character is also someone to watch as like a a player on the board you know right. at, at this point her father um Sir Otto Hightower uh played by the great Reese Ifans um he dispatches her for probably somewhat nefarious purposes to go kind yeah. of tend to the grieving king and you're like all right so here's allison's storyline now kind of spinning into motion um and i'm very curious to see how uh she and rhaenyra kind of i don't know if they'll stay friends if they'll become enemies or whatnot but i think that establishing that closeness and then having allison's father kind of violate that toward the end i think is a really interesting um you know inciting bit of plot and for me, as somebody who's read Fire and Blood, the, the George R. R. Martin book that this one's based on, um, it's a great example of the ways in which the show is making good TV adaptation decisions. Um, because the book, you know, certainly speaks to the fact that there's a closeness between Rhaenyra and Alicent. But I believe that there's like a 10 year age difference between the two characters in the book. So this is one of those examples of, you know, fudging the timeline a little bit. In Game of Thrones, all of the Stark kids were like, seven, eight, nine years old in the book. Uh, mm -hmm. They're obviously, you know, significantly aged up for uh, the HBO adaptation. So there's a little bit of that that's going on here as well. I know that there's been a lot of talk about the fidelity that Ryan Condal, specifically as Martin's chosen um, partner in this, has towards the source material. There's this, you know, popular story about uh, how there is a Rhaenyra Targaryen on the show, but there is also a Rhaenys Valerion on the show, and the names are so similar, and we can't possibly change that because it's so important that she has the name. And so I think that that strongly suggests that there's just going to be this uber loyalty to the book. But even in Princess Rhaenys, who uh, we see a little bit here in, in this episode, the queen who never was, who's passed over in favor of Viserys to become the king at the start of the whole show... She has, I believe she has black hair in the book, like notable streaks of black hair. She's a platinum blonde Targaryen in this. Mm -hmm. So there are ways in which the, the show is already clearly making its own choices. The thing is that it's in conversation with Martin. So it feels like these choices are being made with the express approval of the person who created this story in the first place. So that gives me a lot more confidence in a lot of the, the zigging and the zags. This feels like minor stuff to, to even bring up, but I just want to bring that context to the table as somebody who really loves the story that this one specifically is based on, that there's already a couple of things that are you know notable changes, notable differences from my experience reading the book to what's happening on the show that I think are you know getting uh, big thumbs up from, from me. So I... That's one thing that this episode sold for me, Richard, is I feel like we're in confident hands here um, making this return to Westeros. And I think that that's really worth pointing out with this reveal at the end of the episode about what a song of ice and fire is. Um, yeah. You know, when Viserys is anointing Rhaenyra as his heir, he appoints her as his, as his heir. He has stripped that responsibility from Daemon after Daemon's whole king for a day uh, 
faux pas is a very light way of describing uh, this really uh, ghoulish thing that he says after the death of um, Viserys' wife and uh, barely born child um, that he passes on, that Viserys passes on to Rhaenyra, this knowledge that Aegon the Conqueror, who came to Westeros, uh, ostensibly, we thought, to just conquer the place over basically a political slight is the story that has been told and has been reported. But no, there's more to it than that, that there is this dream, this vision that has been passed down through the Targaryen generations from king to king, that there is this threat north of Westeros, north of the Wall, this icy, chilly death gloom that is coming to consume everything if we are not united together to fight against it. And this is a revelation. This is, you know, the books are incomplete. There are only five of the seven planned A Song of Ice and Fire novels. This is not in there. Part of this, for me, Richard, feels like George R. R. Martin being like, guys, I know I'm late. I know I'm so late. <laughs> Let me just give you a thing. Here is a thing. It's going to be in the book. It's here on the show. I don't know that it's going to matter so much to, to House of the Dragon, but you need something. This is my version of an excerpt because if I give you another chapter excerpt, you'll have just read half the book that's already completed. So uh, right. I, I liked that, but I think that this is going to be one that in the book community is going to cause quite a stir. Yeah, I mean, because it's the most crucial part of that bit that um, part of the dream or the prophecy or whatever was that a Targaryen has to be on the throne when this, you know, was that was that or well, am I kind of feels, misunderstanding? I mean, that feels to me like, um, you know, that's the way that the Targaryens are handling it. Uh, and I think speaks to the thematics of, you know, this sort of um, the, the the iron grip on the iron throne and like the, the 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 fierce, fierce tightness with which these kings hold their power over the realm. You know, maybe a conversation with a couple of other people would do the trick and would, you know, some diplomacy here and some, you know, some of that would, would do. But I think human nature, as examined by these stories, specifically the stories set in Westeros, uh, the, the theory that's posited, I think, is so many horrible decisions are made in the pursuit of power that this level of peace between Targaryen and Stark and Lannister and whoever it's just going to be so hard to forge that peace, even in the face of something as cataclysmic as the White Walkers. Maybe feels, you know, relevant to to some certain themes and issues that are existing beyond the scope of this fictional fantasy series. Um, so I don't think that it's that the Targaryens have to be on the throne. It's that they, they are the keepers of this knowledge. And perhaps the thinking is no one's going to believe us. No one is going to buy into this prophecy. But we are, you know, coming from a lineage of, you know, the Targaryens only exist because one of the older Targaryens foresaw the doom of Valyria, this, you know, great power seat that used to exist, um, you know, further east in the world of this show and was destroyed by unknown circumstances that are alluded to in this very episode. And they left there because of the dream of one of them, uh, that uh, someone foresaw the doom of Valyria about a decade before it happened. So there is this you know, tradition within the Targaryen family of dreams possibly being prophetic and, and telling them really detailed information about the future. Viserys says this to his wife before she passes away in this episode, that he's had this dream of his son sitting on the Iron Throne, born with a crown, and it feels more real than a memory. Um, so I think that the fierce protection of the dreams, I think, is part of why they're guarding the secret so much. But I think it does indicate to us, at the very least, the revelation of the A Song of Ice and Fire of it all, that the Targaryen lineage, if it remains intact, if the king or the queen, as it were, are in um, possession of the Iron Throne, have a handle on Westeros, 
and are armed with the readiness and the knowledge of this impending, um, you know, species wide catastrophe to be prepared for that maybe things will be okay, that maybe we'll be ready to meet the challenge once it arrives. And obviously, Game of Thrones bore out that they weren't quite ready for it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's also important, you know, for this first episode to acknowledge that, like, there is, I mean, aside from the dragons, obviously, there is supernatural stuff in this world. You know, it might not be the primary focus of this show at the moment, you know, Um, but, like, we need to be reminded that, like, there are sort of mystical forces kind of coming to bear on on these characters um and that not everything is up to just like i guess human choice or whatever you know and um even though so much of the show is right exactly Yeah. yeah yeah um so you know one thing about this episode that um i think is is you know kind of the centerpiece maybe the sort of striking a uh, bit of action is this joust, you know, that yes. the king is having these games because um, he's decided, well, I'm, I'm going to have my male airborne. So let's let's just plan the party ahead of time. Maybe it's a little premature, but we'll do it anyway. Um, what do you think are are any big narrative takeaways from those like sequences during the joust? I mean, we, we meet one knight who maybe seems to have uh, an eye out for for Rhaenyra but um the Dornishman kind of, uh yeah, Sir Kristen yeah. Cole yes uh so what, what uh, do we know about him so he so what we learn about him in this episode is that he is sort of this 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 knight of um you know a pretty small background comparatively to some of the people that you're seeing you're seeing Baratheons compete in this joust um, you're seeing, I think, someone from uh, from House Aaron, or at least someone from the Vale, uh, Prince Damon. Uh, his, as we hear in this episode, he is married to someone from the Vale. He doesn't have the kindest things to say about the people of the Vale, um, but a lot of the royal parties from houses that we have heard of or have met in Game of Thrones are represented in this joust. And Cole is not a name that we uh, that we recognize from Game of Thrones. So Sir Kristen. Uh, Sir Kristen Cole is somebody who is, you know, kind of rising from the background to even be at this joust. Uh, somebody who uh, does not have much to, to to bring in terms of family reputation. He's fought against the uh, he's fought against Dorne. He was uh, working on behalf of uh, a descendant uh, or an ancestor rather of Beric Dondarrion, uh, the Lightning Lord, who just would not stop dying on Game of Thrones until he <laughs> and finally <coming> back. <laughs> did. Yeah, you know, who knows if any of that is going to translate to Sir Kristen here on this show? Um, but he's clearly, uh, you know, cutting a quite a striking figure both for Rhaenyra specifically, but I think he makes quite the impression here in um, in King's Landing in uh, his prowess in the joust, the fact that he is able to defeat uh, Prince Damon in uh, not just the, the jousting portion, but when it's single combat between the two of them, he could take this guy's life if he wanted to, and he, he chooses not to. Um, and that is not a choice that everybody in the joust clearly makes based on the barbarity of people's faces getting caved in and such. Uh, pretty, pretty gross, I thought. Um, yeah. So Kristen is showing up and I think that he's he's making quite an impression. Uh, I think safe to say that this is a pretty important character uh, for this specific narrative. Were you were you taken in by him? Did you like Sir Kristen Cole? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I, I had a, some kind of overarching thoughts about all of those scenes where one of them was I, I thought it was interesting. I think it's uh, Rainus who basically says these boys have never been to war. They're they're too soft. They're just right. kind of playing at it at these games. And you did see some brutality in a way that I thought, like, would that have been 
accepted i mean these are like the sons of like noble houses and then they're just getting their faces caved in like that, right i don't know it may but maybe that was reflective of the fact that this is 170 plus years before uh when we you know kind of first entered westeros with game of thrones and maybe customs were a little bit more ragged and, and brutal well, the first tournament um, we saw on game of thrones involved uh one of the three men who would play the mountain uh beheading a horse so oh, you know it was, yeah. it, okay, was pretty, yeah. it was yeah. pretty gruesome yeah, that is even true. 200 years into the future yeah. from, from this point yeah um but I, I i thought that idea was so interesting um uh, about like that this is peacetime and these right. are you know there is a, a generation that that Rhaenyra is part of that kind of can only imagine what it would be to be at war or to be you know so mortally threatened all the time um and i think that's a really interesting place to put this show i mean that's kind of how game of thrones started where like the baratheon reign was peaceful ish and then things of course like very quickly went screwy um and i i I like that i like the idea of that we're going to watch this younger generation um kind of get hardened uh, by by the shifting political realities of of where they are, um, totally. and I think in 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 Kristen Cole's like he seems a little bit more seasoned. He's had some opportunities to actually be in combat, um, and I, I so I can I think yeah it, it I like that they're kind of establishing him as like you know a bit ahead of his peers and uh, including um, Damon who is a little bit older, but like you know the fact that he beats him in that combat um and uh you know does the gentlemanly thing and says yield you know so i don't have to smash this mace into your face um right right establishes him as like less yeah it establishes him as like a more decent person than some of the other people we've met so far yeah i think that he comes into this with you know he um this is this is a guy who who does not have a lot to his name other than you know uh big john proctor energy my name you know he has that he has who he is he has who he is fundamentally he believes himself decent and he believes himself you know aspiring to the ideals of a knight and i and i think you're right i think a lot of that is probably some of that is is earned through experience but i think in the case of most of these characters as you're as you're observing this is peacetime. This is on the, you know, this is 10 years after the death of a man who reigned over Westeros for, gosh, you know, 50 something years. Um, you know, the, the king that we see at the very, very start of this mm-hmm. show. So it is a very important point that is hanging over all of these proceedings is that while there have obviously there have been conflicts and there has been violence and there have been, you know, you know, many wars that have broken out across uh, Westeros and beyond. In the most, uh, you know, in the most recent past, it has not been as brutal as the conquest of the Seven Kingdoms. It certainly hasn't been as brutal as um, the the immediate period following the death of Aegon the Conqueror. Uh, there's a mention of Magor, uh, Magor the Cruel, in this episode. That Damon is going to be another Magor the Cruel, who was one of the previous kings, I believe, the third king of Westeros. And that dude sucked. He was a bad guy. He was a pretty violent guy. And so Damon being compared to him is uh, pretty terrifying, but even that person is something of a distant memory. And I think that the, you know, there, there's, there's a lot to draw from that. One is that the people here in Westeros now should be, you know, a little calmer, a little chiller than, uh, than, than what, we, what we would expect from people during wartime. And yet I think that there's also, there's like some, there's something of a buzzing underneath all of this. There's a little bit of an energy that is humming beneath this entire show right now of people who are ready to grab power and hold on to it tightly should they get any. 
Uh, and I think that that emerging from a period of time where people are not particularly used to uh, what that would entail and the fallout of that and what that would really look like. It's one thing to sort of theoretically imagine what the violence of your choices might yield. Uh, and it's a totally different thing to see it actually spill out onto the streets of King's Landing. And we see it in this tournament of, I think, people playing at war, uh, as, yeah. uh, as the queen who, who never was alludes to. Uh, then to see it actually happen, as may happen on this specific show, I think is going to be a totally different thing altogether. Yeah, I mean, you get a sense between, you know, these young men kind of getting a little overzealous on the, on the jousting pitch. Um, and then also that the fact that King's Landing, it said multiple times, has kind of fallen into a bit of, you know, lawlessness and chaos, or at least that's how Damon sees it. And other, right. And, he and claimed, you know, the way that the way that Damon sees it results in this horrific raid that happens, yeah. you know, a quarter of the way into the episode. And I was really curious to get your take on this, Richard. This is a really violent sequence when you see the gold cloaks are going through King's Landing and people are being uh, dismembered, uh, mutilated. There's the castration. Mm -hmm. There's the beheading. It's really, really violent. How far afield was this for you from Game of Thrones? Was it different in terms of content for you in terms of Game of Thrones? Was it different for you in terms of where we are watching this now? I just I was I was really yeah. curious to know how the how the violence sat with you, uh, if it felt particularly gratuitous or if it just kind of felt like another day in Westeros. I mean, I kind of think the gratuity was the point because it was like, you know, it's the show being like, we're back, <laughs> you know, like right. remember all this stuff, but we're going to do it more. And um, I kind of get that from almost a marketing perspective, I guess you could say, like they just want to sort of start with, um, you know, a bang uh, or several and um, and uh, so it works for me. And I think also you could look at that, you know, um, City Watch raid um, as maybe some political commentary relevant to America today, you know, in terms of like, you know, a uh, sort of extra violent, extra militant police right. forces and, and law and order kind of rhetoric from certain politicians. And and I, I think that they were they were showing that even within the this, you know, kind of brutal world of Westeros um in a sort of medieval-esque times that there was there there was some sort of squeamishness about that kind of thing I mean you know that the king's council is basically like that was way too much like you went he went way too far you know so they have standards you know and but they're very tenuous and there are people already in this episode who are willing to to, str to stretch those standards to break them entirely um and it just goes further to show like how tenuous all of this is you know that 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 the, the the crown can has to pass in just such a way or or you know or else the whole kingdom will fall into disarray and and uh i like that that violence is being used on this episode as like the sign of something burbling up to the surface that something is changing you know um and things are going to start to fall apart um so i think it's well uh, uh, you know employed in that way because um we need to feel that we're jumping in in this particular time for a reason, you know, that there is something inciting happening. Yes, it's the death of the queen and the death of the son, but um, there's also just other agitators. And one of them just happens to be the king's brother. Right. 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 He's quite the agitator. <laughs> It's very agitated. Uh, so I, I, I mean, I'm not the squeamish type. Uh, I, you know, my Richard, my origin story, my pop culture origin story is my parents foolishly let me see Terminator 2 Judgment Day in theaters when I was a seven year old. 
And oh, so boy. everything spun out from there. Uh, it's <laughs> a really bad choice uh, on their part that led to some fun choices for me. Uh, so I'm I'm pretty uh, you know pretty hardened to on screen violence at this point in time, and even even some of the stuff that was happening in this episode, I did feel myself just like my stomach tightening uh, watching watching this sequence, watching a lot of the joust, um, the the death of the of the king's wife, and just man the brutality of that choice not belonging to her uh, and Viserys being next to her and and lying to her, and as as it's dawning on her what's about to happen and the fear. And yeah. the you know forget the visuals. I think the 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 sound design of of that sequence was really haunting, and I have not let go of that uh, since since watching it. And I I think that it's really effective, and I think that you drive uh, home a really strong point about why it's needed in this show. Uh, that it's you know it is it is demonstrating the need for this story to be told if we're if we're picking back up in in Westeros that this is a time of change. And that these are these are moments that are um, that are are covered in this level of brutality to to uh, you know to pass something on to to us to make us feel the way you know the the hardened stomach I think is absolutely the point and yet I am I am really curious to start asking around the people that I know are not huge huge Game of Thrones people but liked the show well enough and are interested in checking it back out even if they were burned by the end of the show. I don't know that the content is all that different from Game of Thrones, but I do wonder if we've just been through enough. You know, we've just been yeah. through so much in these last couple of years, certainly specifically. That is, it, do I need this on my Sunday night? Is this what I need to solve my Sunday scaries before I have to go <laughs> back to the office that is compelling me to come back to work? Um, so I don't know. Uh, and I'm, yeah. I'm really curious to, to get the vibe from people having watched this episode. Yeah, I remember, you know, I think it was like around 2016. I every Monday I would wake up like really kind of having slept terribly in nightmares. And I was like, Oh, it's because you're watching the walking dead every Sunday night <laughs> and you need to stop doing that. <laughs> wow. So, it, so yeah. it's you and me keeping that thing alive. Huh? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well I have, I've kind of, I've, I've drifted away from that show since, but like, but yeah, I think that's a good question is like, is this kind of the show that we want or need right now? Um, and I don't know. I, I think that they do manage to, at least in this episode, I think balance that stuff with more thoughtful moments and, and and kind of more quieter character moments, so it's it's not so unrelenting as it was on The Walking Dead, for example. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think I think I think especially we're we're going to have to be cognizant uh, as we talk about this show going forward and thinking about it is that this show I think differently than Game of Thrones in a sort of significant intentional way is about women in this world and yes. and about how they're treated and mistreated and and you know in this kind of dynastic power struggle how they are very um, important parts of that because of marriage and childbirth and all that, but that's a very passive thing that they're sort of forced into, you know. And um, and I think that the way violence and other brutality is visited upon women in this show um, is something that the show is clearly um, thinking about, and I think you know we should too. And 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 because that could step a line. I mean, you already have in this episode um, Otto Hightower, the Hand of the King, sending his daughter, who I think is supposed to be maybe fifteen, sixteen. She's young, yeah. I think right around who is there, in his fifties, maybe. You know, and um, we don't really know what's going to become of that. Maybe nothing will, but um, th that's pretty out there in terms yeah. of of content. And I and I also think, am I? Did you? Was there something happening between 
Rhaenyra and her uncle Mm -hmm. beyond just a, hey, good to see you. Well, so that's hard for me to weigh in on, Richard, okay. because I don't no, you know things. spoil that's, you know anything things. for yeah. anybody. Yeah. But what I'll remind the the folks back home about, of course, is Jamie and Cersei Lannister were a thing. They were twins and they were lovers. They were the parents of three children together. Uh, and uh, they would often justify that as this is taking from the great Targaryen tradition, uh, that the Targaryens married each other, that they wedded each other, that they bedded each other. Uh, and so that was all theoretical back on the show. And you were really dealing with that specific issue through the Lannisters, who at least at the start, you're really being trained to distrust, if not all the way dislike. So how that's going to carry over in the show that has however many Targaryens this one has. Um, I don't think that you're wrong to be picking up on some vibes. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> I think this is a, a piece of IP that is singular and that they're like, yeah, we're going to do some incest stuff, <laughs> you know, like yeah. they, they don't they don't they didn't shy away from it uh, in the original. So I, I don't I can't imagine that it will at least not be it'll be something of a topic at some point because, yeah, the, the Targaryens are kind of famous for it. Um, but I think that is definitely given how I mean, I, I think Millie Alcock, the actor is in her early 20s. But she yes, looks she very is. young, and yes. and as does Emily Carey, who plays the Lady Allison. Um, thus far, she'll be um swapped out for Olivia Cook at some point down the road. I just learned today that she was the young Wonder Woman in uh in oh, the really? Wonder Woman movie. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. Um, Some cool you know, street and, cred to bring to the table, and and whether or not it's credible to a medieval world that you know obviously inspired Westeros that that you know brides would be this young and um sort of put into that role uh well before what we kind of conventionally think of as like an appropriate age that might be realistic in some sense but is that in 2022 um something that can or should be depicted on television i don't know i think that probably the violence is one thing but like that sort of the the sexual danger and compromise of uh, that that's that's already sort of being alluded to in this you know first episode that i think is where the think pieces might kind of spin off from yeah and i don't think that it's unfair uh i think that i think it's a really worthy topic to explore and i think that this show by necessity based on the story design uh based on the history that spins out from all of this is going to have to go there to a certain extent and the question for me is will they go there thoughtfully uh will they go there in a way that is um uh you know if if it's if it's horrific to watch, is it done with care? Is it done with intentionality? Um, and I think that these are these are X factors. I don't know that this was always the most delicately broached subject matter on Game of Thrones, for example. That being said, while George R. R. Martin is a constant between the two stories, he was not terribly involved in the later days of Game of Thrones, certainly. But beyond that, the people who are making this show, it is it is a bigger team of people, of, of creative minds and producers and writers um, than I think, uh, you know, there was a there was a real, I think, certainly David Benioff and Dan Weiss get a lot of both the credit and the blame for where Game of Thrones ends up and just Game of Thrones is totality. And in this case, Ryan Condal is showrunner and co-creator with Martin, Miguel Sapochnik, showrunner as well. But there's so many other names, Sarah Hess and beyond uh, that are involved in this that I feel like there is something more of, um, you know, there there is a, a larger small council uh, behind the scenes right. is is sort of the feeling that I'm getting from House of the Dragon just in the preliminary research and what we're seeing on screen in this episode that makes me feel ready to um, confront these challenging topics on the show 
but holding my breath a little bit for sure. Uh, and I'm, I'm really curious to see what other people have to think about all of it. Yeah. And actually, this is a good time to mention. Um, we really would love to hear from people listening to this. Uh, you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Comments, questions, rebuttals to anything we've said. Uh, we welcome it all. Um, and we'll try to kind of keep up with that in real time. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. So, Josh, before we go, um, I is there anyone we haven't really talked about or anything? I mean, we haven't really talked much about Hightower beyond what he does with his daughter, like... Is there a character we, we've we've omitted? I mean, you know, uh, Damon has this lady friend, Missaria. Uh, yes, uh, played by uh, Sonoya Mizuno, yeah. who I loved in Devs. Uh, just so so good on that show. Uh, so she's she's here. She's you know kind of a, a small role in this episode, um, but uh, she she may have a bigger role to play moving forward. I'm I'm curious to see how she's represented on the show. We didn't get a ton of the Sea Snake, uh, Lord Corliss. Who's played by Steve Tassant. He is the he's the character who seems to really be like, why are we talking about a new heir? Your heir is your brother. Why are we fighting this? Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to see a little bit more about him. He is one of the the potential subjects for a spin-off series uh, from from this mm. show. That there is a there is a sea snake show that has been uh, been in development for a little while. Whether or not it moves forward at all, uh, I think is is another question. But I don't think that the episode really gave us a ton with him. There was a lot of just, you know, introductory stuff in yeah. this episode, uh, like very quick meet and greets with a bunch of these characters. There's a good moment with Corliss and his wife, who is the queen who never was, Rainus. that I think that the two of them, if the show can get deeper into those characters, they're going to emerge, I think, as fan favorites. I think that people will really like their dynamic together. Um, so I'm really hopeful that they're going to explore that a bit more. I think a huge omission is... We haven't talked a ton about the dragons uh, and, you know, it is sort of a big deal. This is the house of the of the dragon. Uh, And in addition to the fact that you were right, Richard, of uh, how quickly we would see a dragon in this show. Were you impressed by the dragon? Did you feel any different dragon energy here in this show versus Game of Thrones? I think the energy is different. And I think it's because we're in a timeline or, or, or an era where they're they're more common you know the, the 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 majesty and the sort of shock of, of the dragons on the original series was that no one had seen one of these things in anyone's lifetime you know and 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 so now they're a little more commonplace so they have lost a bit of their um you know the element of surprise or the, the sort of grandeur um but i i think they obviously come they they matter a great deal um both as a sort of symbols of this this family but also like that changes how warfare works like significantly we saw that uh play out on game of thrones that once dragons were involved it was a whole different ballgame and 
Um, so I'll be, I'll be curious to see how they're they're used throughout. I mean, obviously they're great imagery. They can HBO can market things with dragon imagery on it, with the sounds of the dragons, whatever. But like in the story itself, um, they're a significant part of 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 how this family holds power. And right. um, I I guess a question I had for you about the dragons is: Do we have a sense of how many there are at this point? I don't know that we do based on the show specifically. If there was a number given in this uh, episode, I missed it. But the but the big number that is circulating Yon interwebs is uh, one lost number plus one. Seventeen dragons is the uh, dreaded number of dragons that exist during this period of the show. I don't know if that's accounting for dragons that are yet to be born. Again, this is a bit of a generational tale. It's a lot of dragons. It's a big yeah. amount of dragons, certainly compared to Daenerys's three. Yeah. So which which means like, you know, they both have more power and less in some weird way because, um, you know, they seem to be shared by, you know, like Damon has his own dragon, you know, and right. that's like a major thing because um, he clearly is uh, gunning for that throne. I mean, that's evident in this episode. Um, and if he has that power behind him, um, that changes things than if he didn't. Obviously, totally. And I think uh, another thing that's worth observing is that final scene between Viserys and Rhaenyra in the bowels of the Red Keep uh, right beside um, Balerion, the Black Dread. That is the the dragon that Aegon the Conqueror rode into Westeros on uh, and is uh, no longer alive, obviously, as evidenced by the skull. Uh, but that was the dragon that Viserys himself uh, once rode. I think he, he was uh, he rode uh, this dragon for the last year of its life. Um, so he was uh, Balerion's final dragon rider. So that that signifies something of a of a passing of an era. But uh, there is also the existence, and you you hear the name checked in this episode. Vagar is the name of another dragon um, that is associated with Aegon the Conqueror, uh, and uh, it is associated with Visenya Targaryen, who is one of Aegon the Conqueror's sister wives, who is a particularly brutal person. This moment where. Uh, Viserys and his wife are talking about how Rhaenyra thinks that uh, that she's going to have a sister instead of a brother, and she's already picked out a name, Visenya. Viserys says, "Well, we already have a Visenya." He's alluding to Daemon, in that Daemon is sort of the more dangerous Targaryen; mm-hmm. that he is somebody who is a little bit more war-minded and a little bit more brutal. So Vagar is mentioned, and Vagar is still out there. One of the original dragons that was part of the conquest of Westeros still exists, still lives during this time in the show. I think that's worth pointing out, not just because maybe that dragons could be kind of important to some of the things that will happen as the show moves forward, but also to really locate us in proximity to this time in Westeros. Yeah, it's a time of huge transformation, but there is still this very critical link to the past, Mm -hmm. uh, to the formation of the Seven Kingdoms um, that... We are, you know, a hundred some odd years into the reign of the Targaryens, and yet there is still a flesh and blood, fire-breathing bastion of the old conquest that still exists in this world. So it is a kind of bridging of the eras that uh, that is happening off-screen that may happen on-screen at some point in time this season. Well, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, <laughs> uh, in the meantime, yeah, please again uh, email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Any thoughts, questions, whatever. Uh, we will we welcome it um you can follow us on twitter josh what are what's your handle there you can follow me at round howard and i'm at rylaws um and yeah so until next week uh we know we'd love to hear from you and thank you for listening uh still watching is edited and produced by dave gonzalez uh and we'll talk to you next week
Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.